Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. On Sunday, Black Panther made history as the first superhero movie with a Best Picture Oscar nomination. And though it was snubbed for that one, the film did win in three categories, the most Oscars in the history of superhero movies, original score, costume design, and production design, with Ruth E. Carter and Hannah Beachler, the first Black women to win Oscars in their respective two categories. And while awards aren't everything, it is a good reminder of just how mainstream comic book movies and geek culture in general have become. So given these historic firsts and the inevitable onslaught of superhero movies that 2019 will bring, I thought it would be a good moment to revisit one of the very first episodes of the podcast. My guest was Ramsey Fawaz, associate professor of English at the University of Wisconsin, who'd just come out with a book called The New Mutants a title shared, incidentally, by a forthcoming 2019 superhero movie. We talked a lot about origin stories, the X-Men, and what the queerness of the original mutant family, the Fantastic Four, can tell us about comic book heroes today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Seems like comics are being taken more seriously in academia and in mainstream culture, along with stuff like TV. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? It is the moment of comics right now. It's pretty amazing to see this explosion. And I think that it's happening for a number of reasons. Um, I think, one, humanities programs are struggling in this contemporary environment to retain students, to manage enrollment. There is a massive anti-intellectual sea change in U.S. culture in which people are critiquing the humanities for being useless, for not training students in the kind of skills they need to be in the job market. So humanities programs are suffering, and they're realizing that one of the ways that they can retain students and show their relevance is to be engaged with what is happening in contemporary popular culture, to teach courses that are about things that are circulating in young people's lives, to remind them that they can study the objects that circulate around them. I think the other reason is simply because we now live in a world that is so deeply saturated with visual and textual imagery combined that we can no longer stick our head in the sand and act like you can teach people only about text or only about images. So the minute you look at comics, 
you can't help but talk about film. You can't help but talk about radio. And that's kind of ironic because comics are very old media. They're just like hand drawn, right? The fact that they plug into so many contemporary media is fascinating. And I think people are interested in that. Totally. And the interesting thing about comics, too, is they're almost one of the most accessible mainstream media there are. You know, they're cheap. You can pick them up at the store. You don't always have to know the whole storyline. And yet, on the other hand, academia and academic writing is pretty inaccessible. Do you feel like there's a tension there? Um, You know, I do and I don't. I think that academic writing gets a bad rap for being inaccessible. But here's the thing. Every field has its language. Corporate America, the nonprofit world, engineering. I mean, name any field and it has its own language. And I'm always intrigued why academic writing is um, attacked more than other fields. I do think the question of accessibility is important because I think a lot of academic scholarship has often simply said, I don't need to explain myself to ordinary people. I'm writing X, Y, and Z book or essay for a very limited audience. I just don't think that we anymore have the luxury of not explaining what it is that we do. So as an example, what do you think a particular academic term is, you know, that you use in your book that's really important? Oh, I think the word that is always key is the word queer. Yeah, certainly. And I think one of the first queer families is the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. And your main argument about them is that they seem on the surface to be very normative. Yeah. So what is so queer about the Fantastic Four? I think what is so queer about the Fantastic Four is that it visually presented to readers the most traditional, normative, nuclear family you could ever imagine. It looked as though there was a woman and a man who were like a husband and wife, and that's Sue Storm, the invisible woman, and Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. And then her brother, Johnny Storm, the human torch, and then their best friend, Ben Grimm, the thing. It looked visually as though they were a mother, father, and their two children. The reality, of course, is that they're not that at all. They are a chosen kinship network that have been thrown together by circumstances that are unusual and unexpected. They take this unauthorized rocket flight into space, and they're trying to do what is the most normative traditional thing you could possibly do in the period of the 1950s and 60s. They want to beat the Soviets in the space race. So they go off into space, and they're bombarded by unknown cosmic rays. And when they crash land back on Earth, they realize that those cosmic rays have altered their molecular structure so that they've all gained these newfound powers that make them into mutants. And they decide collectively that they're going to use those abilities to defend humanity. The image of a seemingly nuclear family penetrated literally by unknown mysterious rays. I mean, what could be more queer than this? So their powers constantly unravel the expectations of what their bodies are supposed to be. What I find fascinating is rather than finding this slipping and sliding of gender among all four characters as a problem, the comic book thinks it is awesome. The 60s is an incredible moment of gender instability in the modern United States. And the Fantastic Four was obsessed with that. And it played with some of these ideas about malleable or flexible gender through its characters. Well, what about the thing? So he's the least human looking of the group. Unlike Mr. Fantastic or the Invisible Woman or the Human Torch, he can never not look like the thing. Yes. Most of the time. So he's like a a walking yellow rock, basically. And yet, he's the superhero that Marvel picked for its fan group mascot. Yes. And then as a pinup for this giant New York comic convention poster that you put in the book. 
So he's not exactly photogenic. So what's so compelling about the thing? The thing is this model of an ideal masculine white American man who is transformed into a huge orange rock, which you would think would make him more masculine. But in fact, his rockiness alienates him from other people so much that it makes him extremely emotional. He expresses deep sadness that he is at a disjoint from people. And yet it is because he becomes more vulnerable that people love him. He actually has a girlfriend in many in the first years of the series. There are these brief moments when he becomes human again. And his girlfriend keeps saying, like, I actually don't like it when you're in that form because you're so macho and you're so conservative. And she's like, when you're the thing, you're so emotional and honest and open and you're like vulnerable and you're a real person. So the comic book played on the idea that we are all divided beings inside So in the 60s, one of the ways of talking about being transgender, which at the time was thought of as being transsexual, was the idea of being trapped in the wrong body. Many people don't feel trapped in the wrong body, but that's one way of talking about it. And that way of talking about it was very popular in the 60s. And the comic book creators use that language to talk about the thing. He's not actually transgender or transsexual, but the idea in the comic book is that he feels trapped in the wrong body. And But the irony is that he never feels quite right in anybody. Once the possibility of being the thing is made available to him, every time he becomes human, after a while, he's like, I miss being the thing. Like, I miss being strong physically, but also being accessible to new kinds of people in new ways. So in a way, his gender becomes... Uh, fluid and unusual throughout the comic book. And um, I think that that's why readers loved him so much, because he embodied what it meant to feel ambivalent and confused and torn up inside. Speaking of fans, you talk a lot about how fans sort of influence the comics and the comic writers through their fan letters, uh, which were printed at the back of each issue. So what is an example of a fan response to some characters in the Fantastic Four that ended up significantly changing the storyline? One of them is the debate that that ended up unfolding between fans about the role and purpose of the invisible woman, who at the time was called the invisible girl, right? She becomes invisible woman in the 70s. In the early to mid-60s, there is a fan who writes in and says, the invisible girl is kind of meaningless in the comic book, and I think you should just eliminate her. She doesn't do a lot. She's always fainting. And what's really the point of having her in the comic book? And in a way, he had a point because up until the first year or so of the comic book, she was really a shrinking violet and she didn't do much in the comic book. And she always was getting caught by villains and she herself felt kind of useless. So a flood of letters come in that the editors did not expect in response to this letter. And people are basically like, that's ridiculous. This character is so important. She's so crucial to the team. In fact, instead of eliminate her, what you should do is make her more powerful. In a way, without ever saying these words, the letter writers kind of kept insinuating, like, haven't you ever heard of a woman's movement? And in issue number 22, about two years into the series, they grant her two new powers. She can make other objects invisible and she can extend an invisible force shield. And what's amazing is that within the next 10, 15 years, you know, the invisible woman becomes one of the most powerful people 
in the Marvel Universe. There's an amazing moment, I think around 2006, in which she uses her force shield to force a spaceship that's trying to flee Earth to stay within Earth's gravity. And there's an amazing moment when Mr. Fantastic, her husband, looks at her and he has a thought bubble and he thinks... Sue Storm doesn't, like, my wife doesn't even realize it, but she is maybe the most powerful superhero in the Marvel Universe. It's an amazing moment, right, where a man acknowledges her power in this way. And that's something that's, that was developed over decades of creative uh, production. So to get back at the comic world that is most colorful and sort of set you on your own journey, the X-Men. So they're a big evolution, let's say, from the Fantastic Four. Yeah, we have this band of mutant outcasts yes. who come from really wildly different places. There's a Kenyan weather goddess, a teleporting blue Bavarian, yes. a Canadian wild man. <laughs> it's like Irishman. relentlessly diverse. Right. So they come from all of these crazy places and they have crazy different abilities, but they come together. So mm-hmm. why do they come together? Because one thing that they share across their differences is the experience of being outcasts, of being perceived as alien to the human race. And one of the things that brings them together, of course, logistically speaking, is this character, Professor Charles Xavier. Now, what's interesting is that his vision binds them together, but they don't always agree on whether or not they want to follow his vision exactly. And so part of what the comic book dramatizes is the idea of a group of people coming together for a shared vision of global and intergalactic peace who find themselves over time struggling about whether or not they all agree. What distinguishes it from the Fantastic Four is this. The Fantastic Four is obsessed with the idea that what binds all people in the galaxy is that they have shared human qualities. The X-Men says, actually, there's no such thing as a universal humanity. Many, many people are left out of the category of the human. And so now we have to negotiate our differences and not merely race, class, gender and sexuality, differences in taste, in style, in upbringing. Like there are so many differences between these characters. And the comic book is an extended meditation on what it means to negotiate difference. And I think one of the biggest differences that you talk about within the X-Men is you mentioned Jean Grey earlier, the Phoenix, Mm -hmm. one of the only women on the team along with Storm. They seem to come from totally different backgrounds and have very different opinions on a lot of things, but they're still best friends. Can you talk about their relationship? Absolutely. Storm is everything that Jean Grey is not. She is completely liberated in her own way. She has lived on her own, untethered by romantic attachments. She's a 19-year-old like weather goddess. And they bond over the fact that they are two powerful women who want to live life differently than what all of these norms have expected of them. And so in many ways, the X-Men of the 1970s, that comic book becomes focused extensively on women. So all of the characters that we think of in the X-Men, like Wolverine, who became really, really popular, that didn't happen until the 1980s. Like the comic book in the 70s was about women, and they introduced so many women in the comic book. There's all of these women that enter the world of the X-Men in this period, and at the core of all of those relationships is the friendship and the bond between Jean and Storm. And that extends all the way to the present. I mean, that relationship has played out over four and a half decades now. 
So in your book, you talked about how they sort of represent two halves of feminism. So yeah. Jean Grey being white feminism, yeah. all about individual liberation, and Storm being more about recognizing that there are different kinds of feminism yes. and different kinds of women. Yes. So do you think that kind of that relationship and that give and take, let's say, has continued for all four decades? I don't know that it's the same or that it could mean the same. So as you said, like I argue that in the 1970s, the relationship between Storm and Phoenix Jean Grey was often dramatized visually as the relationship between, like you said, a kind of white liberal feminism on the one hand. Like here's Jean Grey and she's all about like, I am woman, hear me roar. Like I have this newfound power. I'm liberated. Like, you know, she embodies a lot of the ideas of white liberal and radical feminism. Storm, on the other hand, is liberated in a different way. She thinks that liberation is about producing new kinds of connectivity with others in complicated, um, multi-layered ways. And so in that way, she very much embodies the values of black lesbian feminism in this period, uh, which invented what we now call intersectional analysis. Black lesbian feminists were like, by the way, you don't get liberated by being like, screw everybody, I'm free. You get liberated by finding affinities and connections with lots of different kinds of people and seeing where you overlap and where you don't. And Storm is very much this way. She would never have a relationship with this white woman if she didn't see that they could have affinity and connection. But I think that after that period of the 70s, the meanings of their relationship changes. So in the 80s, white liberal and radical feminism in the United States fractures internally. Feminism becomes really divided. And in many ways, black feminist thought gets thrown to the wayside. Like once again, kind of the racism of certain kinds of white feminism rears its head. And that plays out in the comic book in the ways in which Jean Grey loses her mind, becomes a malevolent force in the universe and kind of obliterates her relationship with Storm for a brief period. And so I think that at every historical moment, Jean and Storm's relationship has transformed in relationship to what has been happening in our culture. In the height of things like Black Lives Matters, the transgender movement, Jean Grey is no longer the center of white liberal feminism. It's Storm who represents the zeitgeist. And so their relationship is flipped in the current moment. Speaking of diversity, part of Marvel's new all new, all different campaign is to introduce alternative representations of all these superheroes. Uh There's a huge variety. I couldn't even begin to list that. I know. It's pretty extraordinary. But it seems a little bit superficial. Yeah. So can you talk about the difference in diversity between the original X-Men and these, yeah. these new diverse versions? Yeah. So here's what I find interesting. The contemporary world of Marvel Comics is indeed extremely diverse. But so, so, so was the Marvel Universe in the 70s. To me, there is a major difference between simply stating the fact that there are lots of people in the world and they are all different And then actually setting those people into dynamic engagement to see how they negotiate their differences. I would call that other thing heterogeneity. Heterogeneity is hard. It's not only about the fact that we're all different. It's that we have to like negotiate those differences. We have to deal not only with differences of race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability, We have to deal with the fact that we have differences in philosophy, in taste levels, in experience, in what we want out of our lives. There are so many layers of difference that that in itself is what should be interesting, is how we negotiate them. And that's how you produce a democratic world. I think that Marvel's investment in making more and more and more diverse characters is not completely 
a BS move, right? Like, I think that they're genuinely invested in showing a broader range of different kinds of people be superheroes. But I think it's also a lot about niche marketing. I don't always think that these characters are set into dynamic interaction with each other. And I think superhero comic books were doing that decades ago. For Marvel to act like this is a new phenomenon is a sales gimmick. On the other hand, I want to say I think it's incredibly valuable for people of all ages to pick up a comic book and to see a superhero who is like them. But I think if the only way we can feel connection to others is to identify with them, then we should just give up because the world is not like you. Nobody is like you. The point of the world is to learn how to engage with people who are not like you. And I think that comic books in the 60s, 70s, and 80s did exactly that. They trained readers to encounter a world that was not like them and to still feel affinity and love for that world. And that is what I call world making. By this point, you've probably seen an X-Men movie or 12. But in case you're interested in the new things coming up, we've got links to the trailers for The New Mutants and Dark Phoenix, both coming out this summer. The New Mutants is also the title of Ramsey Fawaz's book, and we've got links to a few of his essays about comics, too. We'll be back next week with an episode about making the law work for you. But until then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.